0: Hi, I'm Karen Farbridge. Welcome to Promethea Rising, a podcast promoting energy conscious communities. Join me as I talk with good people solving a wicked global problem. My guest for this episode of Promethea Rising is Louise Como. Welcome, Louise. Thank you.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: So let's begin by having you tell our listeners a little bit about your career
1: path and, and how you've been
0: leading change throughout your career?
1: I started working on climate change about 30 years ago. I think it's actually 30 years this June.
0: And I think that's probably when we first met, was in those very early days of your climate change activism.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'd already been at it um, at that point when I went to work for the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. I had already been at it since 1990. I think I went to FCM in 1998. So I'd already been at it for a while and started with NGOs, did a lot of international climate work, a lot of that meant, of course, a lot of federal engagement uh, with various governments and spent several years working with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities before going back to work with NGOs. So I've been at this for a while and taken different perspectives on it as I've gone along, currently focused more on the social science uh, side of things, especially communications and how to better engage people in a conversation than I think we've been doing to this point. So what compelled
0: you to do this work in the first place?
1: Well, what's interesting is, you know, I've always, at the, up to that point, had lived a life that was, you know, without me realizing it, kind of in You know, I had two kids, and, you know, it was always about cooking all their food and the cloth diapers, and I always had a garden, and it was like, I just felt better when I was doing things outside. My dad was from a rural community in northern New Brunswick, and... It was a a kind of it's hard to describe it in that early days of me understanding what it was, but it was really environmental justice that was driving me. I, I just kind of felt the pain of the earth and I felt motivated to do something about it. The climate change issue was a conscious choice, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. When I first started working at Friends of the Earth when I opted from communications work which was my early training for governments and companies and so on and wanted to basically do work that was in alignment with my personal values and friends of the earth was the first group to hire me when I moved to Ottawa and ozone depletion was a campaign there that was just coming to an end and I wanted to think about what kind of work I would like to do and I consciously picked climate change because it was a transformative issue that to solve it we would need to confront more than just an application of end of pipe uh, technologies. So this is challenging work. What has kept you going? It is challenging work. I have experienced deep depressions along the way and frustrations and sadness uh, with the comings and the goings of governments and the retrenchments and the progress. <laughs> Being so limited, but uh, I've really found that what keeps me going is is dirt. (laughs) Uh Um, I have increased my homesteading commitment with my partner, and we grow most of our own food. And my capacity to work from home and to be able to get out and to garden is really what keeps me capable, actually, of, of doing what I find to be extremely emotional work in terms of climate change.
0: How did you make the transition from those early days in environmental climate change action into the Federation of Canadian Municipalities? Can you tell us a little bit about that transition and what motivated you?
1: Mm -hmm. The work that I was doing first at Friends of the Earth and then at Sierra Club of Canada was great work. I mean, I, I was very focused on policy. And as I said, the international negotiations, I literally lived in international settings while we were negotiating the Kyoto Protocol. And that took us through to 1997, and it was so intense. It literally took me, you know, months to recover from the Kyoto uh, negotiations. You know, I really felt naively that we had the agreement. It was legally binding, that we were on our way, and that it was appropriate for me to turn my attention and my contribution to solutions. And then Jack Layton, who was in line to become president of FCM, asked me if I would consider applying for a position that was there. He really hoped that I would be on staff when he came in as president. He and I had done a lot of work together and he wanted to really have that support there. And I applied and obviously got the job and was at the beginning of expanding the Partners for Climate Protection Program. We created the Sustainable Communities Awards, an annual or biannual conference. And of course, then Paul Martin's government gave us lots of money to start the beginnings of the Green Municipal Fund, which of course has achieved great things and expanded significantly and is continuing to be an important driver of change at the municipal level. So that was a good decision. And I feel that of all the things I've done, that's the thing that sustained the most positive outcomes. What
0: have been some of the major lessons you've learned over that 30 years of being engaged in this work?
1: I think the big one is that uh, change is more motivated by love with a little fear and anxiety to trigger caring, but not the other way around. And it's very difficult in the work that I do, especially with people who are very technology focused or policy focused, to understand that the the love aspect, the care aspect, the, the desire to protect and nurture is what we actually have to care for. And that, that's what we need to nurture. And we're not doing a very good job um, of that. We tend to think in zero-sum terms. We tend to think in competitive terms. And we also have not gotten to what I think are the crux of the matter in terms of what's causing the difficulties that we have. We tend to be tinkerers. You know, We change at the margins. We're not looking at deep systems change. We're not looking at deep structural change. We're not looking at deep change in the way we think. So
0: what's some of the deep change that you see us needing to tackle?
1: Well, I think The first and foremost is that we are not having a conversation about the appropriate role for what really are just ideas, but the appropriate role of capitalism and consumerism. You know, these are treadmills. Sociologists will tell you that the treadmills of production are fueled by the treadmills of consumption and we can't get off. Well, we need to get off. We certainly need to get off um, in the context of consumption and production being so materials based and wasteful. So ideas like a circular economy where waste is an input for something else, complete reform from a output's point of view. But also, you know, we need to take advantage of the moment that we're in. I've just completed focus groups and been listening to Canadians across the country talk about how the pandemic has shaped their current perspectives. They, they feel, you know, working from homes turned out to be a great thing. They're actually enjoying consuming less. They're enjoying not spending so much time uh, commuting. They're enjoying the fact that they're saving more money and spending less. And I think there's a moment and a time now that we have for a a deeper conversation that I would say most change agents, most uh, environmental groups that I work with have been reluctant to have. And I think we don't have those conversations, that the deep kind of change, both on the, let's call it the bad side of the equation, where you're generating pollution, we're generating waste, that won't be solved. But nor will the love side of the equation, where so much of what we are dealing with now really comes from a way of thinking that's been ingrained in us. You know, that we're separate from nature, that it's uh, there for us to use. Even when we say that it's not, it's how we engage in the world. We rationalize our own behaviors when we think, oh, well, you know, I do good work at work. You know, I can fly here and do that. Poor planet doesn't care what your rationalization is. It can only take so much. And so there's a whole opportunity, I think, to to challenge how we think. These are not laws of nature they emerged from a certain time in the 1600s. It's, you know, 2020, we can maybe think about some new ideas.
0: <laughs> it sounds like you have a level of optimism for this conversation. Are there places where you're seeing it take hold? You, you mentioned that you were part of some conversations. Where do you see this happening and, and where can we encourage it to continue to happen?
1: I think the big change for me and part of what I'm thinking about now in terms of the work I want to do is to work with women. My experience over the 30 years and from the research I've done since I've done my PhD, I engage in a lot more social science research. And I've learned a lot about the nature of the conversation we've been having about climate change in particular. But you could pick almost any issue, environmental issue for sure, dominated by a male voice, male perspective. Women have always emerged from any data as uh, having a certain uh, certain interesting attributes. One is they have a lower tolerance for risk, a higher concern for safety. They are more environmentally oriented, of course, but they feel less confident, less confident in their ability. And yet they are, I think, the, the voices that we need to nurture and bring to the front of the line. And I think it's through women that we will change our conversation about environmental issues and climate change. And so for me, it's about how do I, how do I do that? And I've learned I have to change because I've been trained in a certain way of thinking around climate change, which is the issue I work on. And it's very much focused on policies and technology. Well, it turns out if you're talking about technology, women don't care that we're not getting through when we're talking about turbines and electric vehicles and and they sure don't want to talk about carbon pricing it's not their issue but they do want to talk about their lived experience they want to talk about environmental issues from the perspective of uh, their lifestyles and their families and their communities and we've limited that because most environmental groups and most environmental thinking trades off system change for individual change it's like oh well we can't blame the individuals you know individual contributions are tiny this is completely the wrong thinking individuals change everything and it's through our role modeling and our leadership and our activism in the sense of living lifestyles that we think are low carbon in my case that inspire people and that's how change occurs we change social norms that way and we can guide people toward through their lifestyle understanding as i say we put people in the green box decades ago and we never the blue box i mean and never let them out. Um, So people still think that the solution to environmental issues is primarily through recycling. And this is not the case. We've not helped them engage. We've not educated people so they can engage effectively. And I think that's particularly the case for women. So for me, it's about how do we bring women's voice to the fore and let them take their place in this conversation.
0: How is this understanding impacting your day-to-day now and changing the way you
1: do your work? I'd say there's probably two dimensions there. One is I'm completely focused on women at the moment and uh, learning to listen to what they're saying and then give them through the work I do what they've asked for instead of telling them what it is they should do based on what I think they should do. So it's like changing the whole scenario. And the research I did over the last two years showed me that women want to know more about food and how food affects climate change, how climate change affects food. They want to know more about waste. And so I have to learn to help open that door to that conversation. And I'm working very hard to do that. And one of the things we've done around this idea of that the story is more about love than not is we've created a series of videos. There's going to be 14 of them called for the love of, and we've spent the last year interviewing people in New Brunswick, um, talking about what they love to do, whether it's swimming or cycling or gardening or hunting or foraging. We're a rural environment so you'll see more of that like that here than maybe elsewhere but regardless people talking about what they love to do and then we show in the video how climate change could affect that thing that they love and give them access to a website with very simple materials that essentially they told me they needed in the research that I did. So I'm learning to listen more and to give people what they need and as a result of the, not just the women's focus, but I spend a lot of time on communications research. How do we speak to each other in ways that don't exacerbate, I guess, polarization when we don't want it? Uh, I actually think we need some polarization, but we also are there are ways and means to engage people who are not paying that much attention, who we don't need to exclude from the conversation if we're ca- careful and thoughtful about the language that we use. And, you know, most Canadians, you know, are open to having a conversation if you're attentive to their worldviews. And I think getting people to understand that people are reacting, not based on the facts, but on how they interpret the world. And if they have certain fears, and you trigger those fears, because you haven't been thinking about it, you exclude a conversation that possibly could have been very powerful. So, I spend a lot of time thinking about language and testing language and communications.
0: Climate change has been a very polarizing issue, but I'm interested in your comment, we need a little bit of polarization. Can you talk a little bit more about that and your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I've really, in the last year, I spent a lot of uh, time researching social movement ecology. And I realized that if you're thinking systems like that, we need to nurture all aspects of the social system or the social system ecology on climate change or any environmental issue or any issue. And in this case, we tend to have too much invested in policy work and technology talk or what I call the inside game where people are speaking elite to elite. But it turns out that the very interesting research shows that if you want real change, you actually do need people on the streets. It's through grassroots organizing more than it is about the elite inside game. Although that's an important component, it needs, if it's going to succeed, it actually needs uh, grassroots organizing. And we're under-invested in grassroots organizing. We're under-invested in getting people to participate in, in peaceful protest. And the reason that it turns out it works is that it's a moral issue. What grassroots organizing does is force people to pick a side. So I think we need to pick a side on climate change. We're not going to get everybody to agree, and we need to just do what we can to bring people along. Some will never come along, but they'll get there when everybody else is already there. At the same time, you know, that's a certain cohort that are able and and interested in, and I'm not saying that's activists. What we're seeing with a lot of the climate movement with Greta Thunberg and so on, is that the people who are participating in peaceful mobilization are from every walk of life every age every gender every experience is fantastic and that's that's showing that there's great social support for action from a a solutions point of view that's where i think we can minimize polarization the debate in the end turns out to be much more about solutions so let's just like a couple of examples to make that easier to understand You know, a person who, what they call a more progressive worldview, is simply a person who's more comfortable with change. They're okay with new technologies. They tend to be more egalitarian. They tend to be more collectively oriented. A person who's more conservative in the orientation tends to be somebody who's a little bit more individualistic, uh, doesn't like the idea of government as much. They are more, what's more important is individual freedoms and so on. But there are ways for solutions to be put forward that can satisfy both groups. And it's just taking the time to think about it. One example would be solar power. Solar power can uh, satisfy both groups. It's shiny and new technology on the one hand. It has environmental outcomes, right? On the other hand, so the progressives like it. And a more conservatively oriented person likes it because it gives them freedom. (laughs) It gives them independence. They don't have to pay the utility, right? So there are ways to frame solutions that can engage people in the solution side of it. On the organizing side of it, it's about picking a side. Are you going to support solutions even though we might debate solutions? And I think we just need to start thinking it through a little bit differently than we have been.
0: What one piece of advice would you have for someone who's starting out to lead change today?
1: Well, I think it might not surprise you to have me say, "Stop talking about technology, stop talking to men, and focus about you know what we want energy to do. This is one of the things I learned from a very nice little pyramid chart that pollution Pro put out. You know it says, you know, on the bottom, you've got your you know, your sources of energy, you've got the commodity that you create, whether that's electricity or whatever it is, right? But really, what people are after after are the amenities at the top. And, you know, when I talk to people about electricity, as an example, since we know that's the big solution, if it's clean, and you know, what do they want? Well, they want energy to support their quality of life. And they want that energy to be affordable, and reliable and clean. And so our job is to show people why changing out from the current electricity system to another electricity system that will be more prominent in our lives is also a a renewable or clean system. But first and foremost, it's also affordable and reliable. The policy work I'm doing this year is actually focused on this very question. And I hope to put out a report that will talk about how the transition is, is also a transition that maintains those particular priorities for people. So that, again, is part of this listening, right? And not me just talking about, oh, we got to phase out coal, we got to do this. No, 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 no. Is it affordable? Is it reliable? These are the questions people want to have answered.
0: You talked about what keeps you going, you know, your core strategy of dirt
1: and having your hands yeah. in the
0: dirt and keeps you yeah. going in a challenging space where there's lots of ups and downs. What keeps you inspired? What inspires you today?
1: Well, I'm a bit, I'm struggling, actually. I'm not sure uh, how I feel right now. And I think it's, it's, you know, many people are feeling, you know, anxiety and so on. I'm fortunate in this stage of my life, but I am facing the next phase of my life. I'm supposed to think about things like retirement and stuff, but I'm struggling right now with what is the best thing to do? What is the right thing to do? What's the right balance of things? And what's the best way to contribute? So, you know, 30 years is a long time. And I often wonder whether it's just time to just hand it off and let others uh, do it. At the same time, I never felt more curious and continue to try to um, learn new things every day. And I feel like I am learning every day. So I'm not sure at the moment what's inspiring me, actually. I feel a deep uh, dread most of the time about the climate change issue and you know a deep failure to have done enough to motivate not that it's on my shoulders of course it's not but just feel like we've just missed the mark so many times so much of the time so many ways in terms of how we needed to make the changes we needed to make now. We needed them done 30 years ago. And so, yeah, it's not clear to me what's inspiring me yet. And I'm thinking deeply about what lies ahead. So that's always good.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm I'm feeling a little dread asking this question, but it's always (laughs) a question I ask um, towards the end of my interviews because Promethea Rising is all about promoting energy conscious communities. And so engaging people in that conversation Thinking is that if we're aware of how we use energy, where it comes from, how it's distributed, its environmental impacts, that awareness will lead to action. And so my question is, do we have enough time to develop energy conscious communities? And and perhaps given this interview, is that going to be sufficient to turn Mm -hmm. things around by 2050 which is where the climate scientists
1: have put a stake in the ground as a date yeah. that we need to be thinking towards from from having done my phd i got to say it you know it taught me a lot and one of the things that taught me is that knowledge actually does not motivate change and so our work it's based on something called the knowledge deficit model and so making people aware does not actually get us the change that we're looking for it's a fundamental component but it's not enough of a motivator. It's, it, it's essential or a sufficient, it's a it's necessary but not sufficient condition. That's the way to say it. And so the question is then what other things are necessary uh, in order for change to occur? And it comes back to what I was saying about people being motivated more by love and what they care about than just awareness of the facts of, say, energy or climate change itself. And so we need to broaden the scope of what we do. And I think it takes us into the ethical realm. And ethics has really been neutered, if you will, since the Enlightenment, where it's basically focused on, you know, right and wrong. You're in the category of having done things right or in the category of not. And it's really reduced ethics in a way that i think we miss something important and that is what about our character and so the question for me is because we are just human and we're so prone to rationalizing and to not sticking with things uh, we actually have to develop our ecological character And to have strong ecological character is to, you know, kind of identify with the environment. So let's say we want people to care about energy, but it might actually start with us helping people care about nature, feeling connected to nature, being outside, developing a bit more of an environmental identity, or at minimum, I mean, a commitment to the collective, to to concern for society, not just myself. Even though there can be money savings, what we find is getting to the deep change requires more of a commitment than just thinking about say your individual change or savings or your financial situation so this this issue of caring about society which is this beautiful thing that's happening with the pandemic um, is kind of a fundamental piece of it so there's just a nice package that has to go around our goals of increasing energy awareness in terms of whether we have time um you know we are dealing with a stock and flow problem right we have you know about twice as much greenhouse gas emissions going into the air as nature can absorb so at the very minimum we've got a big problem because no matter how slightly our emissions change till we get to almost zero the stock of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere continue to rise and so i would say no we don't have time we have time to do something about not making it worse we don't have time anymore to stop it from happening. And so, therefore, the question becomes one of ethics, I think, again, and the question of suffering. Are we committed ethically to minimizing the suffering that will occur in the world uh, from climate change, whether that's to human communities or fauna and flora, everything, life, right? And so, you know, that means a much more rapid change, but we still have a stock in the atmosphere we have to contend with so 2050 i don't even want to talk about it the question becomes for me is the next 10 years is this the turnaround decade will we do what needs to be done will we shut the taps and will we focus our minds on minimizing suffering
0: thank you louise i certainly appreciate the deep thinking and thoughtfulness that you're bringing to this (laughs) is making a contribution even if if you're wondering what does lie ahead for you, it sounds like even just this thinking is making such a great contribution to the conversation. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.